America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Turns out that uh, San Francisco may deserve that title a little bit more than people thought. They just had an election where an overwhelming landslide voted to throw out the entire Board of Education. Remember, the entire school board. The uh, school board had uh, voted uh, to um, spend a great deal of time finding 40 schools where they were going to change the names of the schools. They were named after bad dudes like Abraham Lincoln and uh, uh, George Washington, of course and uh, Diane Feinstein, and as former mayor of San Francisco. Uh, the, uh, that didn't happen, but what did happen is a recall election with a very decisive result. We will get to that. There's another favorite city, but it's not the kind of favorite city where you have news that is in any way encouraging. The favorite city I'm talking about is Seattle. Yes, Seattle is a lot of people's favorite city. It's my favorite city. But uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal, Why Thieves Love Seattle. And we will get to that on the Michael Medved Show, especially at a time when the new mayor has actually delivered his State of the City address and talked about what he's going to try to do about crime. And meanwhile, the uh, crime problem is an increasing problem for uh, the president of the United States, because Joe Biden, and there's a, a piece by Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal about how Biden is definitely losing black support. He's not rejected by a majority of African-American people. Uh, black people are overwhelmingly pro-democratic, but just less than before. And in close elections, that could be crucial. And what does that mean? That means you're caught because there are so many voices on the extreme left, particularly in the black community, but actually all around the country, that believe that cracking down on crime, which is so important for the country, which is so necessary, that uh, that is going to lose some uh, support on the extreme left. We're also going to be speaking about some of the revelations uh, from the left contained in the latest filing by John Durham. Uh, and there's a lot of, of quotations, including some from Donald Trump himself, who say that this scandal is worse than Watergate. Uh, Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, says, no, it's not worse than Watergate, but it's plenty bad, just bad in a different way. And something that was uh, plenty good was the uh, the Super Bowl, very successful this year, certainly more successful, more watchable than the Olympics in Beijing. And one of the things that's amazing about that is that this very lavish new stadium, that the uh, this is SoFi Arena, that the Super Bowl was played in, was built for five billion dollars without a dime of taxpayer money. So how did they do that, and how do we avoid uh, having big sports teams, yes, including the Washington uh, Commanders, the replacement for the, well, you know the other name, 
Uh, how do you get those people to give up the idea that we're going to hold up taxpayers to pay for our stadiums for billionaire owners of sports teams? Uh, we'll be speaking with uh, people from Reason Magazine, that's Libertarians, who have actually researched this and taken a look at how that can be done. And uh, we will also be talking about the idea of what qualifies you to be part of the Black Caucus in a state legislature. It turns out that it's not enough to be black. What else do you need to be? We'll be speaking with John Fund of National Review about that. Uh, but first, I, I, I just a very quick word about what happened in San Francisco. They had an election last night. They had 117,000 people voting. So it's a big election. And this is not the San Francisco Bay Area. This is just the city of San Francisco. And uh, very much the same way that people in New York who live in New York and around New York, they don't talk about we're going to go to New York or we're going to go to Manhattan. They just say we're going to the city. And people use that same terminology in San Francisco. Well, this is all about the city. Well, voters in the city uh, took a look at the three names that were being recalled, which was all the uh, 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 crucial ultra-left members of the uh, a school board. And uh, then the result was boom. Well, let, let's let CNN report uh, this rather astonishing good news. Listen. I saw a lot of kids struggling, uh, you, know, work, you know, doing school from home, and I saw the school board prioritize renaming schools over getting kids back into school. They should have been focused on reopening schools like most districts were thinking about and doing. Okay, and there's more than that because the the mayor of the city London Breed had actually endorsed the recall. Now, remember, they just tried to recall Gavin Newsom in California. That failed. That didn't work. But this did. And basically, it's a combination of the political correctness, of the craziness, of... Uh, they, they basically uh, were, were saying that when San, that Diane Feinstein should have her name taken away from a school that was named after her 30 years ago she was a mayor of San Francisco in the 70s and during the time she was mayor this is why they wanted to rename the school and i remember we covered this on the air and it was it was unbelievable the reason they wanted the liberal senator from California, and I know Diane Feinstein is not the most liberal Democrat in California. You have to go quite some distance to get there. But uh, what had happened is there had been some flags that had been flying in front of City Hall down near where the old Opera House was in, in San Francisco. And they had a whole range of uh, different flags that were displayed that had been given there and one of the flags that was there that was flying in front of uh, City Hall was bum 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 a Confederate flag that somebody had donated years and years ago and uh, what Diane Feinstein did is she allowed it to be replaced 
And for that reason, she should have her name taken away from the Diane Feinstein Elementary School. Look, I can think of all kinds of reasons you you might want to... First, actually, I can't really, because as much as I can disagree with Diane Feinstein, once you've gone through naming a school after somebody, uh, because you find some flaw in their political history, their political record, you're going to strip the name of the school... And people who say, oh, I used to, uh, I went to a school that used to be called the Diane Feinstein School. I mean, all of this is a ridiculous situation. And it's one of the reasons that one of the more powerful and I think provocative uh, commentaries that I've seen recently is a piece by Matt Bai that just appeared in the Washington Post about why he hates both parties, cannot stand the Democrats cannot stand the Republicans, and he suggests that um, one of the things that we are likely to see is maybe, just maybe, a flourishing independent candidacy that is neither uh, Democratic nor Republican. I think that's very unlikely. I do think it is likely that people are going to be looking at electoral reform. Uh, There's a piece by a professor who studies different schemes of voting And he actually thinks that one of the states is just this year for the first time using a new system that the whole country ought to consider. What is it? What is involved? We'll get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. Michael Medved's marvelous, malice-making media machine. This is... that uh, I've shared with people who listen to this show is that I ended up living 20 years of my life, including my last two years of high school. Then I went away to college and uh, then some time after college and came back to Los Angeles. I lived a total of 20 years in L.A. And during the time that I lived in L.A., you get used to the fact that your national news. I mean, L.A. is in national news all the time. Uh, Seattle, not so much. I mean, Seattle is not quite, it's close, but not quite in the top 10 cities in population in the country. And there are a lot of things that I think Seattle is tops in. One of them is not right now the the crime rate or the climate of law enforcement or the political climate or the city council or any of that. But basically what we have right now is a situation where the only time you hear about Seattle is if there's an earthquake uh, or if there is a disastrous crime or something goes horribly wrong or you have a moronic idiot socialist city council woman who says incredibly stupid things. I mean, basically something embarrassing. That's when Seattle makes news. And sure enough, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal (laughs) gives our town some uh, publicity that is not really to be coveted or admired or envied. Uh, the, um, The piece is called Why Thieves Love Seattle. And it's extremely well written, of course, and it makes some powerful points. It says Democrats elsewhere may be fleeing the defund the police movement, but it lives on in Seattle. 
Business owners told the city council last week what the resulting breakdown in law and order means in daily life, and it deserves more attention. Wednesday's hearing, that's last Wednesday, of course, uh, came days after the Seattle Police Department released its 2021 year-end crime report, which showed a 20% surge in violent crime to the highest levels seen in 14 years. Aggravated assaults rose 24% in 2021 from 2020, and robberies rose 18%. The official statistics show a 9% increase in property crime, but business owners testified that the real numbers are much higher. Many victims no longer bother to call the cops. Responses to 911 calls can take hours. And criminals are released soon after they're arrested. Businesses say they fear their insurance costs will spike if they report what's really going on. Uh, Seattle's soft on criminals policy predates 2020, says the Wall Street Journal. But after the murder of George Floyd, the city council voted two years in a row to cut police funding. And sure, that makes a lot of sense. Something terrible happens in Minneapolis. Uh, the... Um, Police officers are now standing further trial. The additional police officers, everybody's guilty. And so you do the logical thing. Something terrible happens in Minneapolis. You cut the police budget in Seattle. How asinine. The uh, city council voted two years in a row to cut police funding. Since January 1st, 2020, some 357 cops have retired or quit. It's nearly impossible to recruit officers to work in a city infamous for its hostility to the police. We spoke to the former chief of police in Seattle, Carmen Best, the first black woman uh, police chief in our town. And she tried to do a good job, but of course she ran into headwinds with the extremely radical city council and the then mayor, Jenny Durkin, uh, who thought that the uh, independent zone that they were creating, the Capitol Hill-occupied protest chop, that that was going to be a summer of love. There were actually murders there, right in the midst of the summer of love. In any event, all of this fits into something. Last night, Diane and I went out for one of <laughs> our exciting outings during COVID uh, to a drugstore to pick up a prescription. And uh, again, it was... Um, I, it was fine, and the there was a little bit of a problem with actually getting the right thing that we had ordered, and the lady at the front was very voluble. She was very talkative and uh, very apologetic about having messed up the order a little bit. This is a big national chain of drugstores. And she said, well, the problem is... We just don't have enough personnel. We can't hire people. You know anybody who wants a job? I said, no, not right, not right now. And I said, what's the problem with, uh, with hiring people? She said, just all the shoplifting. Nobody wants to deal with it. I said, what do you mean? This is in a nice suburban neighborhood. We're not talking about downtown Seattle. We're not talking about a third... Avenue and uh, Union or, or some address like that. Okay. I said, well, shoplifting here? She said, yeah. They come over, they, they uh, uh, and she says it happens every day. They're people, they have bags, and they come in the store. We're not allowed to say anything. 
and they just start taking stuff off the shelves and walk out. And they fill their bags and they go out. I say, well, why don't you stop? I said, we're not allowed to stop them because the insurance won't let that happen. Because if you stop one of these people, some of them are armed, something bad can happen. The insurance doesn't want to deal with that. So the corporate policy is no, we don't stop them in the store. The moment they leave the store premises, we call the police. We call 911. So sometimes they get there right away, but usually not. And certainly by that point, these folks have gone. Sometimes they have come up in cars. Sometimes they've come up in bicycles. But every day, every day. And you see, again, part of this strikes a memory for me because in, let's see, it was 1971. Uh, and for most of that year and a little bit of 1972, the first part of 72, I was uh, I was working in a, the same job I had done when when I was in college, uh, where for two and a half years I worked as a sales clerk, basically at a record store, because I loved music and it seemed like a great way to earn some extra money that I needed as an undergraduate. And so okay, so I worked there. But one of the things that was very difficult, particularly in Berkeley, California, and a little bit less so in New Haven, Connecticut, but also in New Haven, was dealing with shoplifting. And the guy who was running the store in Berkeley, his name was Sandy, sort of famous guy in Berkeley lore. But he wanted us to tackle the shoplifters and basically risk our lives. And, and again, you have to be pretty bold if you're going to shop, uh, because this is not the days of compact discs or even cassette tapes. This is the days of big, large uh, vinyl discs, right? And you can't hide that somewhere. You can't put it in the bag. So people just grab a bunch of records, and out they go. And then Sandy would see that. He'd say, oh, oh Mike, go ahead to tackle the guy. Go follow him. Go chase him. And, okay, I tried, but it, it is awful. People struggle to keep these stores alive. They really do. Everybody has to make a living, except the people who take for a living. We will be right back on The Medved Show. show always great to um, welcome back somebody with so many court cases taking up national attention somebody who knows his way inside of a courtroom knows how to prosecute people and actually get some important convictions against criminals uh, Andy McCarthy Andrew C McCarthy is senior fellow of National Review Institute a uh, contributing editor of the magazine National Review. He was a very successful prosecutor, uh, playing a prominent and heroic role, actually, in the war against terrorism years ago. He is uh, also the author of Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Uh, okay, Andy, with the uh, Durham revelations that people are talking about, is uh, is this worse than you expected? 
uh, is it uh, not as bad as you expected, or is it just different from what you expected? It's consistent with what I expected. My the I, the whole I think in this, Michael, from my perspective, is the theory of my book about this was that the real collusion in the 2016 election was that the Obama administration had colluded with the Clinton campaign to put the law enforcement and intelligence apparatus of the government in service of the Democratic Party, first in, in uh, the trying to get Hillary Clinton elected president and then trying to undermine Trump's presidency. And the big departure from what I thought happened here and what Durham's theory seems to be here is that he has the Obama administration essentially uninvolved and uninformed, and by his lights, the uh, FBI is a dupe here. Uh, he's, he's clearly looking hard at the Clinton campaign, but there's almost no mention so far of anything to do with the CIA. Uh, Barr announced early on uh, before the 2020 campaign that uh, Obama and Biden were not subjects of the investigation. I never expected they'd be charged with a crime, but I thought uh, the Justice Department was pretty quick to say they were essentially uninvolved. And all of the prosecution so far, uh, for all the hubbub around them, involved lying to the FBI. Even the FBI lawyer who was prosecuted was charged with lying to the FBI. And I just think given the abundant evidence that we have of uh, FBI bias and misconduct in this case, it surprises me to see Durham taking the position that the FBI is basically a satire rather than a uh, willing participant. Well, and the point is that uh, you you address the idea that a number of people, very prominent people, I believe even uh, President Trump himself, have said, though, this is worse than Watergate. This makes Watergate look like child's play. Uh, the point that you make in your very insightful piece in National Review is as bad as this is, it's very different from Watergate and much less serious in one sense because Watergate was the president of the United States using the government against private citizens and what it, Durham's information appears to suggest right now this is a lot of private citizens yeah they're involved in politics but they're not working for Uncle Sam who are actually right. manipulating uh, people who do work for Uncle Sam and that's, that's right. uh, uh, so, so what happens here? Do you think there will be a further probes of the FBI? Has there been anything so far, uh, for instance, about the current director of the FBI, James Comey, is yesterday's news. We're talking about Christopher Wray. What about uh, his exposure to anything? I, I think Wray will probably come out looking all right here because he'll – uh, you know, he was kind of brought in to be the anti-Comey and clean things up. And as he's pointed out, um, you know, almost nobody, I think it is nobody who was uh, involved in this at the FBI in any way is still working for the FBI. So he has cleaned house, even though, you know, he's not a flashy guy. So I think he's done it. He's, he's gone about it quietly. Um, I do think, Michael, that the, the big thing here is the 
the scandal here, and very often in these political scandals, the criminal offenses that can be charged are comparatively minor versus the, the, the big scandalous narrative, which here is, is political spying. So obviously, the, you know, these charges of lying to the FBI, these sort of process crimes, are minor compared to the context in which they occur. And that's just a, a sort of a function of how these political scandal investigations go. But I do think the big tell or the big takeaway here is that you have this insidious situation, in, in, uh, particularly in Washington, of you know the sprawling edifice of the uh, federal government, and then around it, this kind of cabal of very connected former officials, usually they're former, that, you know, tied up to these. Uh, you know, think tanks and law firms and lobbying firms and, and what have you, and they kind of float in and out of government. They're attached to politics. They know people in government. They have privileged access to government information, uh, and they trade on their former government credentials to have entree into organizations like the FBI and the CIA, and that's how this whole scandal took place. That's the reason the Clinton campaign was able to get as far as it, it did. And I think people ought to be very disturbed by that. Well, the difficulty, again, involves what people did when they were on the federal payroll and um, believing some of the stuff that uh, Jaffe and Sussman, who are the biggest names in this, uh, this current release of information, the biggest names who are there. Uh, the 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 one thing that a, a number of people are talking about is is this finally going to be the end of uh, Hillary Clinton? I mean, during the campaign, uh, eager Trump rallies were chanting "Lock her up," and in mm -hmm. fact, uh, Michael Flynn led a cheer of uh, for "Lock her up" at the Republican convention. Uh, and uh, is is there going to be a serious legal exposure? does it look like for uh, Secretary Clinton? Michael, you and I have been waiting for the end of Hillary Clinton for 30 years. I'm glad we weren't <laughs> holding our breath, right? <laughs> so, no, I don't, you know, I really don't think I, there should be comeuppance for Hillary Clinton uh, in the ultimate narrative report, but I would not hold my breath waiting to see her get charged. And I would again point out to people that you know, for example, with, with respect to Sussman, which I think is a, is a very serious case, raising very serious issues, there's a lot in the indictment, this narrative about political spying. When you flip to the last page, it's a false statements case where he's alleged to have concealed who his clients were, which is not an unserious thing, but it's a far cry from political spying. Um, so, you know, I, I just don't think, I think there's going to be a harsh report written and it's going to be very unflattering for Mrs. Clinton and her campaign. But I would not hold my breath either uh, to, to expect that she'll be charged or that she's going away anytime soon. See, and this is something else. I, I know you've been at least a little bit around campaigns from time to time. Uh, for the, the years of my life that I actually was working in campaigns, spying was a given. I mean, when people use the term opposition research, what that means is basically digging dirt on your opponents. And the question about whether laws were broken in any of that, 
leaves an awful lot of real estate for people to do all kinds of shady scams. Uh, not Andrew McCarthy. He's above that and uh, someone who casts light on some of the dark places. Appreciate your comment. Uh, meanwhile, what happens about dealing with crime, even in Seattle? Michael Medved show uh, Rudy Giuliani disagrees with Andrew McCarthy and uh, with me uh, he's still out there ready to chant lock him up lock him up one, one of the things that I think about of course is that once upon a time when Rudy was still America's mayor and a national hero he was thinking about running against Hillary for the US Senate and uh, he didn't. It would have been a very interesting campaign at the time. But um, now he um, he claims he was appearing on Newsmax. <laughs> um, and Rudy Giuliani and Newsmax, there's a, a combination. I think that if uh, Rudy does not get a position uh, on, um, on oh, say, the new Trump uh, media center... He is um, a very good possibility for the future on Newsmax. In any event, he made a claim about Hillary that uh, uh, made a little bit of news. Uh, this is clip 15. Listen. Well, how do you think Trump uh, knew, it, knew about it back then? I can't tell you exactly how, but I know how he knew about it back then. There's a lot more to come out. Uh, this is not, I mean, what, what you're... They may feel that it's gobbledygook, but it's gobbledygook supported by about a thousand pieces of evidence, none of which have been revealed yet. Mm -hmm. I happen to have it in my bedroom, uh, yeah. or my den, actually. I've had it was, there for years, as well as the, the fraudulent election. He, he has all this evidence. He's talking about Hillary spying on Trump illegally. And uh, Rudy should not be talking about his bed bedroom. I mean, just should not, because it makes people recall the uh, second Borat movie in which he had an unwitting starring role. And um, the idea that, that Rudy, former prosecutor, has all this evidence in his bedroom or his den, and he's just holding it back, for what? I mean, uh, for again, I, I think that obviously with the revelations coming out, and some of them very serious, and some of them uh, making Democratic Party honchos and manipulators look very bad and very suspect and very sleazy, frankly. But the, uh, the idea that this is going to be the end of Hillary, uh, probably not. Gobbledygook. Uh, uh, yeah, let it be the end of gobbledygook. Uh, the mayor of Seattle, Bruce Harrell, who comes in with, with very high hopes of cleaning up some of the political extremes uh, that have really done incredible damage to this city. And it's, it, everybody knows it. He gave his State of the City address. He's a good communicator, first of all. He so, communicates to people, conveys determination, 
and uh, a an enthusiasm for doing the job, which has not really been particularly true of all of our recent mayors. And uh, he said uh, what I think is music to the ears of uh, many people in the Emerald City in Seattle about hiring new uh, manpower, person power, for the SPD, the Seattle Police Department. This is clip 11 from the mayor's State of the City address. Part of that plan requires more officers. The depleted staffing we see today does not allow us to react to emergencies and crime with the response times that our residents deserve. We have funding to hire 125 new officers this year. So in addition to this special training class, we are rolling out a new campaign to recruit the next generation of Seattle police. But it is important that this will be consistent with the values I expect to see in our officers, the culture of the department, the engagement with the community, the understanding that justice requires serving the people. Even if you're watching today and interested in helping make our city more safe and just and supportive, please reach out. We are hiring. Okay, uh, that's uh, good news. And uh, maybe some people just be inspired to take that seriously. And, uh, and then, of course, he was a little bit disappointing because given the way he had campaigned, you'd like to hear, at least I would like to hear, and I think many of you would, a uh, determination to just crack down on the encampments and clean them up. They've begun doing that, and there are places where you can see real progress. But this is what he said about improving systems to get people into shelter. This is clip 12. We entered office. The city had six different systems in six different departments tracking outreach and services to homelessness and vulnerable neighbors. The Herald administration, this is not acceptable. We have since combined these efforts into one system with cross-departmental expectations of coordination that will form the backbone of not only a transparent dashboard to track progress, but also, and more importantly, to better help people off of sidewalks and off of si and into shelter and services. Okay. Shelter and services um, and helping people into them is uh, somewhat different from making sure they, they go into those shelters or uh, take advantage of those services. And don't just set up uh, another new encampment somewhere else. But uh, here is uh, the way the, the mayor addressed uh, some of the obviously very, very common and frequent complaints about this homelessness. Uh, listen, this is clip 13. So if a person wanted to report their concern about an encampment with the city, the city did not have a centralized system to log their report and act. Now, for the first time, we're putting the necessary people and processes in place to address the more than 1,500 reports we've received from the pub public just since we've taken office. Our new system will allow us to take action, share updates, and provide a more complete picture of what's happening in Seattle. Okay, that picture is, uh, is, is really... A not a pleasant picture. There's a piece in the Seattle Times uh, where the headline was, Under New Mayor, Will Seattle's Homelessness Policy Include Encampment Removals? Okay, how could it not? He basically promised it. 
And this should not be this should not be under new mayor. Will Seattle's just uh, move the will and remove the question mark under the new mayor. Seattle's homeless policy will include encampment removals. It has to because without that, what are you doing? There was a a piece in uh, the New York Times, um, a moving piece, which goes to the very heart of the homeless issue. The heart of the homeless issue is twofold. It is addiction and it is mental illness. And really, really, that's what it's about. And uh, there, there was a um, New York Times ran a, a large piece about one of the uh, people chronically homeless, deeply mentally ill, who had killed a guy. He had pushed a uh, 61-year-old person off a subway platform into front of a subway and uh, the killed him. And so there's all sorts of examinations about this guy who'd been wandering the streets and been getting medication intermittently. And uh, he would punched people before and pushed people before and attacked people before. But until he actually kills somebody, it's just one of those lost souls who who is uh, making his way from street to street corner to street corner. Okay, it's unacceptable. There, there were a series of letters that the Times actually ran, and some of them from... Uh, veteran psychiatrists. Uh, here's, here's, here's one that was particularly striking from West Hartford, Connecticut. Harold Schwartz, who is a psychiatrist uh, in chief emeritus in the Institute of Living at Hartford Hospital. And he says, the woeful inadequacies of our mental health system are legion, universal underfunding, no overarching system to provide consistent individualized care over time, insufficient hospital and residential beds, uh, leading to too short revolving door hospitalizations, too few intermediate care programs, waiting lists for mobile crisis intervention uh, teams, virtually non-existent housing for the mentally ill, leading to homelessness and imprisonment, and on and on. There is one underlying theme in all these inadequacies, our unwillingness as a society to spend the money necessary to adequately meet the needs of mentally ill people. Look, until we confront that, and he even raises the need to, inter uh, to commit people for more than just a few hours, we won't make progress in this greatest nation on God.